From WPVMLP in Asheville, you found the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Lexi Harvey. And I'm Jonathan Ammons, and this is Peter Broderick. I hope I can 
Have you ever been the uh, the the last customer in the door right before close at a restaurant? I've been the last customer in the door. I've also been the last customer at the table, which maybe feels worse. <laughs> yeah, it's something I try to never do, but it's sometimes just inevitable. You kind of have to do it. Yeah, you don't want to kind of interrupt that good time, and I don't like you don't want to you don't want the party to end. Yeah. I've, I mean, we've both been on both sides of this, I'm sure. Like, I know I've worked plenty of bars and restaurants where you had that person come in at like 9.45 and you closed at 10. Mm. And you're like, oh, I have nothing but hate in my heart for this person. <laughs> and then you have to go like pretend to be happy to see them and make your like $2 tip. Yeah. I'm, I wonder what your, your own personal ethic like your your own ethical cutoff is for yourself. Like nine nine forty five if they cut if they close at ten, nine if they close at ten. What what's I try your... to do a half hour mm, at half least. hour minimum. Um, because like just the amount of time it takes to break down a workstation, I know they start at least thirty to forty minutes before close breaking down. Mm. So I'm like I try to get in there before they start doing that. But yeah, I don't know. How about you? 
I hate to say it. I think it depends. Am I getting a drink? Am I wanting to like quickly get in and out? Yeah. Uh, take out what, what's, what's kind of the context behind that. If I'm going for drinks. Yeah. If I've had a few drinks, probably 15 minutes. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that. Okay. Sadly. I mean, I feel like drink is different. Like we, um, Claire and I were in Hendersonville a while back and went to a bar. Everything closes in Hendersonville at like eight o'clock. And it was nine, and or it was right before nine, and we wanted a, a cocktail. And I went to this one cocktail bar in town, and they'd already done last call. And we were like, well, can we just have one drink? You close at nine, right? And they were like, yeah, we close at nine. And I was like, just a gin and tonic. We don't even, you know, make it easy on them. Don't mm-hmm, mm-hmm. don't bust out the bar tools for us, you know, just like pour us something out of a can, you know. But, yeah, I feel like you got to be, you know. Yeah, I've also, yeah, I have been the one to kind of, you know, I don't want to say beg, but like, (laughs) (laughs) like make that last minute plea of just, you know, just a gin and tonic. Just, just pour me a beer. Yeah, just pop open a beer. That's all we need. Just something because, yeah, everything else is closing. Yeah. And I feel like as labor shortages extend, like even more places are closing earlier and it's making that happen with more customers. Well, when writer Lucy Zhang wandered into a Mexican restaurant right before closing time, her experience and the guilt it inspired caused her to dig deep into her life and into her language, oddly enough. The bowl was piping hot, so I couldn't eat as fast as I would have liked, although I tried my best because I felt like the bottleneck to your enjoyment of the Sunday evening. I was the only person dining in. Maybe I can partially redeem myself by telling you I burnt my tongue trying to slurp down the soup and wolf down broth-soaked tortillas as quickly as possible. I know what it's like when someone walks into a restaurant right before it closes. Ugh, now we must wait to wash all the dishes, clean up all the food, count the tips. I always preferred the quiet evenings when I worked as a hostess in high school. One or two tables seated with one or two people each. No customer complaints at the front or unnecessarily difficult takeout orders. Me perusing the menu for what I'd take home as my employee-benefit-free meal. Vinegar marinated jellyfish, which my family loved, or a container of chow fun, which was my mom's favorite. Even though she was supposed to be eating less takeout, less refined oil, less sugar. Not that living on a diet of dad's stir-fried dofugan and Chinese celery seemed to yield results. She claims chemo and aging messed up her metabolism. It was the best bowl of menudo. The most amount of tripe I've ever received from any Mexican restaurant, And, as a bonus, I appreciated those three giant pieces of beef tendon. Hot, savory, and a bit gamey, but not too gamey. Just the right amount of funk that makes organ meats more interesting and complex than normal muscle cuts. I call it the white people tax. They can't stomach the stomach, and so organ meats become cheaper in grocery stores for everyone else. The other customers were all getting takeout. I could tell they were regulars, how fluidly they ordered in Spanish, how you operated in sync with the two other cooks assembling containers and packing chips and salsa. I could make out bits and pieces of the conversation, maybe more if I had retained what I learned in high school. There goes my Outstanding Achievement in Spanish award. I was already embarrassed enough when I tried to order my food in Spanish and stumbled when you asked what kind of drink I'd like. You resorted to English. I reevaluated the capacity at which my brain retained knowledge. I'm sure I'd be able to pick up Spanish quickly again. A refresher on vocabulary and conjugations, then some in-person practice at your taqueria and the one next door. And I would relearn it all if I weren't trying to unembarrass myself with Chinese first. It's been several months since my husband and I began to speak only Chinese at home, something I'd once avoided because I was embarrassed by my American accent. My tongue curling too far back or not far back enough, 
I'd play Google Translate's audio of because I kept pronouncing the X as sh when it wasn't quite the equivalent sound, although they sounded the same to me. My parents tell me that people from their cities, Fuzhou and Shanghai, didn't speak great Chinese, and that the proper speakers mostly came from Beijing, where my husband grew up. I had grown up mimicking my parents' pronunciations of words like she, spoken as qi, incapable of any retroflex sounds. I assume I had learned some peasant version of Chinese, the equivalent of a kind of English spoken in some rural parts of the United States. But you know, that doesn't mean the Chinese we speak is wrong. Pinyin romanticization came later, as a way to turn sounds into letters. You're always going to lose something in translation, Dad said, after I asked Mom why she pronounced quail egg as safety egg. As it is, I feel like I'm learning the language from scratch. Every word corrected, every confused L sound adjusted to be an R, every tongue position fine-tuned to match a lip contortion. Not too curled back, closer to the roof of your mouth, further down from the front lower teeth, even though I often cannot hear the difference the positions make. It's hard not to feel like I wasted years of childhood weekends staring at Mali Ping workbooks, learning the wrong Chinese, the hillbilly Chinese. <sighs> to properly learn a language, I don't think I should toss another one in there until I've mastered the first. Although ordering food might be a better use than floundering in arguments with my husband because I can't recall the right word. Plus, I've yet to try your pozole, caldo de res, caldo de pollo, siete mares. I will order properly next time, so you won't get confused when I use caliente instead of picante. I will speak so well that not a word of English will be necessary. A1 Fain reading Lucy Zhang's story to the woman who served me menudo 30 minutes before closing. You can find that story and all of our backstories on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 20 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com.
say that for most of us working in the service industry, we didn't get into the business by choice. There are plenty of examples of people who have dedicated their life to restaurants, but for most people in the service or the kitchen, it's just a way of paying the bills while we work towards something else. When Vanessa David saw her acting career beginning to dwindle, she turned to the industry as well. 
December 14th. I hadn't worked in six years. I arrived for my interview at Darien High School overconfident, acting like I had for decades in the theater. Several students assisted me in finding the cafeteria, and I went in the exit, much to the visual dismay of the woman at the cash register. I'd later learn her name was Bonnie, and she hated her job. She was good at it, and the pins on her hat celebrating her years of service proved she was proud, but she still hated it. And she hated me as I lifted the rope of the stanchion to get out of her way and into the cafeteria. I'm here to see Sharon. Just as I said that, Sharon came out looking for me. She was well put together, nicely dressed and clearly in charge. She looked around the servery like a hawk, making sure everyone was on task. The place was like a New Jersey rest stop. Several stations selling everything a teenager could want. French fries, pizza, burgers, salads, sandwiches, drinks, and stacks and stacks of snacks. Two ladies ran the deli station, which was so popular they had their own cash register and exit that I had just violated moments ago. Sharon took a moment to point out the various stations. I make great pizza, came flying out of my mouth. It was true. Learning how to make pizza from scratch was worth the entire cost of tuition for the one-year culinary arts certificate program I attended at Norwalk Community College and graduated from four and a half years prior to this interview. I needed this job. I needed a purpose. I was slowly coming to terms with the fact that my theater career was sputtering its way to the final curtain. The regular acting gigs I'd had in the past were now gone. I was part of a theater workshop that was, in theory, useful for developing my plays, but in actuality, it was a time suck that was consuming me like a parasite, using me to continue its mission and leaving me lifeless for my own creative work. Why was I even trying? My mother had been dead for seven years. She was the one who instilled in me the need to be famous. Perhaps it was time to finally let her down and get on with my life. Sharon took me into her office. It was decorated with pictures of her family and had funny memes taped up to every available surface. A big bowl of candy sat atop the file cabinet. Sharon sat me down and told me about the job. Her eyes sparkled. I stared into them. Eye contact had never been my strong suit. I was afraid people could see right through me, see into my soul, see I was a fraud or wasn't worthy or worse. They could see my weaknesses. I focused on her, tried not to think about eating all the candy, and stared into her eyes like the actress I'd once been. I was eager to work, willing to learn, able to operate a cash register and make change. She asked if I had another job, and I did. I'd just been hired to do social media for a local music school and run the store on Saturdays, eight hours a week. That's good, she said, because you need another job to survive in this business. Been here 30 years and I still have to babysit to pay the bills. Darien is a wealthy town. How is it possible that the woman who ran the cafeteria in the one high school in the entire district, who ran this highway rest stop for teenagers with all these choices, didn't make enough money to survive? The interview kept going, and I held Sharon's sparkly gaze. Sharon told me I'd have to learn how to run all the stations and the cash register. They'd give me two shirts plus money for shoes and pants. I sold myself like it was a New York City audition, and I must have said all the right things because a day later, I got a call from the director, Priscilla. 
I got the job. A couple of weeks, one drug test, a set of fingerprints, and a mountain of paperwork later, I was officially employed by the Darien School Lunch Program. I got a call from Central Office that I was to report to work the next day wearing a collared shirt. Now, Sharon had told me they'd give me a shirt, but who was I to correct the Board of Education? My husband, Dave, scraped together enough credit to buy me a navy blue off-brand polo shirt at Walmart for nine bucks. I wore that shirt every day until the end of the school year. That was the first sign of rampant dysfunction. The best was yet to come. Krista Tortora reading a chapter from Vanessa David's book, The Lunch Teacher. You can find it and all of our stories on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. around what and how we eat and drink says a lot about our lives. Do we gather around the dinner table with friends or family, or do we sit on the floor and eat from the coffee table while we binge something on Netflix? 
Do we sit and savor our latte on the patio of the coffee shop or house an iced frappuccino on the way to work? Not only does the way we consume tell us a lot about how we are living our own lives, it can also tell us a lot about our family dynamics as well, what we have and what we don't. Writer and teacher Alana Rabinowitz discovered so much about her family's dynamics over a cup of imaginary tea. Here's Michelle Gentile reading her story, Tea Party. When my niece was little, I spent endless hours with her cross-legged on the floor drinking imaginary glasses of tea out of small white china cups. Cheers, we'd both say, clinking our glasses together. Something about this game of make-believe was a comfort. It felt as if we were really having warm tea and conversing. It's one of my fondest memories of being an aunt. But of my own childhood, I have no such nostalgia. My parents both worked and went back to school to study various levels of psychology, which, for them, meant no time for tea parties and, for me, meant little supervision. When I'd get home, I'd go directly upstairs to our attic and create a world of my own using wooden blocks to construct fortresses so thick and sturdy no one could break in and knock them down. I didn't mind it, really. It was all I knew. It's something most of my generation is familiar with. We were latchkey kids. Independence was encouraged. But while I frolicked around without constraint, I still felt something missing. Why weren't my parents more involved in my life? It was my mother who first suggested I see more, do more. She encouraged me to travel and see the world. At first, I started off small, leaving New York City for Vermont, Atlanta, San Francisco. In my 20s, I volunteered in Sri Lanka, where I spent my free time sipping Ceylon tea smothered in powdered milk and sugar. The villagers gathered their best yellow glasses for this ritual, which brought me the warmth of tea and comfort. It was through these sips and moments of connection that I began to feel closer to the ones I left behind. Two years later, I returned to the States and traded in fresh ginger tea for lattes and paper cups that dripped out foam when I ran for the subway. Now it was time to once again hit the pavement and find a job, a home, start anew. This was something I was used to as a traveler starting over, but it was still a challenge trying to find my place, my home. Friends were now married and having children, and relationships for me were problematic. I was still focused on adventure, trying to bring my imaginary worlds to life, and to break down the fortresses I'd built up around me. Eventually, I tried therapy. I'd enter my sessions grasping cold cups of coffee to sip throughout my 50 minutes. The therapist at the other end of the couch, or more aptly the chair, would always delve deeply into my childhood, looking for clues for failed relationships and general malaise. And every time they would blame my parents, usually my mother, for not being there. Is it really all my parents' fault, I would ask? But these therapists with fancy degrees framed on their walls were convinced. I grew to believe them. It was easier that way. Soon I began to challenge my counselors, in part because I was raised by my parents to think for myself. What did these strangers with degrees really know about me or my family anyway? Why was freedom associated with neglect when it made me the person I am? I would leave each session more confused and hurt, often sobbing, when the therapist would look at me in my red swollen eyes and say, we have to stop now. I would leave their offices with a surplus of emotions and no place to put them. One day I made a conscious decision. I didn't want to dig and examine and blame any longer. 
I wanted to simply live and live with ease. I wanted to build connections and work to construct the relationship to my family I always felt was missing. When I thought about everything I did have, all that I didn't have seemed silly, really. There they were, right in front of me, making me lavish dinners, offering advice. I began to try and navigate and create my own world, just as I did in the attic as a child. I often visited my parents for long weekends during the summer and did what they had planned. As a guest, I always believed the host called the shots. But if I was to change our dynamic, I had to start with me and my needs. Instead of staying home and repeating the same conversations, couldn't we now follow the advice they had given me all those years ago? To see the world, to explore a new town, a new adventure? My parents are now in their 80s and not up for hiking, but still quite mobile. We agreed to take a drive to a nearby town that served high tea. My father drove and his usual anxieties became apparent. What do I do? Where do I turn? He'd yell stubbornly and tenaciously, still refusing the aid of a GPS. My mother calmly reassured him and got us to the small New York town. We walked around for a while, making our way to the tea shop. The place was out of a movie set, with chandeliers lighting the room. The tables were decorated with white lacy linen and china etched in tiny flowers. The menus were tomes written in curling calligraphy and had endless lists of teas and snacks. I ordered a pot of orange pico tea and scones with cream. While waiting, my mother and I walked around the gift shop in the back filled with scented candles and embroidered signs. She asked me what I wanted. I wanted so much in my life. I wanted to be married with children, but that was now unlikely as a woman in her 40s. I wanted to have friends that wanted to go on adventures, and I wanted a job where I felt useful, not used. And at that moment, I wanted the lavender scarf with the tassels at the end to keep me warm this winter. My mother happily purchased it with a smile. As we sat at our table, sipping our tea, a young family came in and were seated near us. They wandered over to the other end of the shop where you could grab silly hats and wear them with your tea if you so desired. The whole family partook as if it was the most natural thing in the world. Sitting in the middle of upstate New York, drinking tea in top hats and fedoras. Their tea party rivaled the best of them, I thought. My mother, seeing me watch this family, convinced me to try on hats as well. It seemed silly. I was too old for this. But when I placed the large black hat with the floppy flowers on my head, I didn't want to take it off. I wore it through three cups of tea and two scones. I sat there and talked to my parents and laughed. At that moment, I realized I finally got my tea party, and this one felt even more special. I had both my parents sitting next to me, alive and healthy, and sipping tea. Tea, in all its soothing qualities, has a way of bringing people together— slowing them down and allowing them to be in the moment. I looked at my parents beaming with pride as I sat there drinking my brew, knowing they did their best and it was my turn now. Time had not run out, but rather had been steeped and strained for years until it was ready to be released. The warm act of sharing tea brought us together in a way that was long overdue. I find that in a family of Freudians, it's best for me to leave psychology behind when we meet. In the end, I'm just a daughter, and they're my parents, and that is the relationship in front of me. 
one filled with crazy hats, anxiety, and adventure. One I no longer want to trade. Like the Mad Hatter said at his tea party, you're entirely bonkers, but I'll tell you a secret. All the best people are. Thank you for raising me to be free and pave my own way in the world.
Okay, Lexi, tell me about your family's food traditions. Ooh. My family's <laughs> food traditions. I don't, I have a lot to say on this subject, but I don't, I don't know if I want them to be out there on public I radio. Mean, I mean, I don't have great things to say about mine. Like, oh, yeah? my, my grandmother was an excellent cook, and so was my great grandmother, until the doctor told my grandmother to stop eating as much salt. And then everything just became flavorless. Mm. And it, it sucked because there were these dishes that we like grew up loving. And we're Appalachian people. We're, we're definitely hillbillies. And so we eat some very traditional, you know, Appalachian staples. But uh, when you make that potato casserole without salt, it's just not the same thing. Oh, Yeah. I mean, a lot of my family food traditions were carried by my grandmother, who also similarly was an excellent cook. Um, she was the main caretaker in our house, so she was always pretty pretty busy doing all of that, um, you know, caretaking labor. So a lot of our food ended up being kind of pre-processed, canned, uh, lots of canned green beans, canned carrots. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the food traditions that I, you know, remember and gravitate towards are the times when we did have those kind of fresh ingredients. Yeah. Because um, I feel like a lot of the dishes that all of us grew up on have like a deep history in fresh foods, especially in this area where everyone used to have gardens. Um, but a lot of those foods are good when they're prepared with fresh ingredients. But most of what we get now comes out of a can. Mm-hmm. Carol Unger thinks a lot about family food traditions. As the author of the narrative cookbook, Jewish Soul Food, Traditional Fare and What It Means, she's dedicated her career to finding the stories behind her culture's most simple foods, even in a simple plate of carrots. It's hours to Rosh Hashanah, and I'm doing what my mother used to do, peeling carrots, slicing them, and braising them in honey. I'm making simes. It's odd that I've clung to this dish, As a kid, I never liked it. My mother, a Hungarian Holocaust survivor, had tastier offerings. Stuffed cabbage, nut torts, palanchinta, Hungarian crepes stuffed with ground walnuts and raspberry jam. Anything but this. Then in my mid-twenties, I spent the Jewish New Year with a religious family in Jerusalem. Their table overflowed with agrarian oddities. Gourds and leeks, beet greens and black-eyed peas, even the head of a sheep. I had never seen anything like it before, but for me, the biggest surprise was a tiny little dish at the end of the table containing what looked like my mother's sea mace. Is that sea mace? I asked. Yes, it was. We didn't just eat it. We preceded our eating with a prayer based on a charming wordplay linking the Hebrew word for carrot, geezer, to the Hebrew word gezerah, meaning evil decree. The prayer was a request for heavenly protection from evil decrees. At that point, I thought of my mother, who arrived in Auschwitz so late in the war that the Nazis didn't tattoo her. Why waste the ink on someone who would soon be dead? And yet, she walked out alive. But that wasn't all. My host went on to explain that in Yiddish, carrots are called meherin, which means increase. Simes, made of carrots intentionally sliced to look like coins, is an omen for prosperity. Again, I thought of my mother, the penniless immigrant operating a successful family business in the heart of Manhattan. No wonder she clung to the sea mace. 
and I do too. This story reminds me of the Baal Shem Tov. For years, he visited a spot in the forest where he lit a fire, recited a prayer, and begged God to save the Jews. After he died, the Jews approached his grandson, who was now their Rebbe. I can't find the place in the forest. I can't light the fire. I don't know the prayer, but I can tell the story, and that is enough, he answered. And so it was for my mother. She had forgotten the prayer, but she remembered the recipe and when to serve it. And somehow that was enough. Tara Vida Weaver, reading Carol Unger's The Carrot Prayer. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 20 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com.
The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media. All of the text from our stories is available on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. There, you can also catch up on past episodes as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that page is by Corinne Pease, Katrin Dosa, Ashley Icomedes, Kelly Manier, Garnet Fisher, Paul Choi, Marianne Papineau, Claire Winkler, and Alex Knighton. Music in this episode by Peter Brodrick, Delvis, Pussy Riot, Alves, Madison Cunningham, Anamali, The Soft Pink Truth, Tamaga, John Bryan, Otley Orverson, Ensemble O and Sylvain Chaveau, Michael Andrews, and the Klezmer Conservatory Band. Lexi Harvey is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. And Catherine Campbell keeps the engines running behind the scenes. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVN. 